Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hey, everybody, this is Rick Thomas, and we're doing Life Over Coffee. By the way, if you haven't shared our resources with 1,000 of your closest friends, please do that. Let them know about the podcast. Let them know about our sanctification center at lifeovercoffee.com. I want to start here by asking you a question, kind of straightforward. Did you know that it is possible to know God but still have a hard heart? Even though we have many means of grace like prayer, the Bible, our local churches, we have each other, we have the ministry of the Word as we hear it preached on Sundays. But Christians are not impervious to the infiltration of sin or its dastardly effects on our souls. It only takes a little evil to create havoc inside of us. You see, knowing and experiencing God does not prevent us from moving down the path to a hard heart, making it critical to understand how to diagnose the sequence that leads to a hard heart, and that's what I want to talk about here. In fact, I've titled this talk here, Diagnosing the Four Steps to a Hard Heart. I trust this will be beneficial for you primarily, but also I'm going to make an appeal as I move toward the end of this, uh, that you have a discussion with your friends, because typically we do not know that someone has gone down the path of hard-heartedness until it is too late because it is unseeable, uh, it is it, it is imperceptible to us, and so we want to be discerning. We want to understand that we all are susceptible to this sequence, to a hard heart, which makes it essential that we have these types of intrusive conversations with each other. Now, if you want to read what I'm sharing with you, please go to lifeovercoffee.com. And again, what you're searching for is diagnosing the four steps to a hard heart. You could probably type in hard heart or diagnosing, and that will get you to this article, to the podcast, and also to the video. How has your week been? Has the resurrected Lord stabilized your thoughts as you have reflected on our victory that we have through Him? How has the residual effect of Christ coming out of the tomb, how has it affected your life this week? You see, the resurrection was a singular event that happened way back there, over 2,000 years ago. But the intent of that event is to have continuous power 2,000 years into the future, into your life and into mine, a one-time event with ongoing power and effect for us. It's like a it's like a recyclable gift that you can use over and over again. It never loses its influence. It never loses its impact in the Christian's life. It never diminishes from what it can do for us, even if you have been a Christian for many decades. One event, ongoing residual effect. 
The conquering power of the Lord that secures our victory, it should sustain all of His children through every day, through every event of our lives, no matter what those events are. The gospel buoys us and it carries us along until we are ultimately glorified in heaven. There is no diminishing of our joy, the hope, the power that we experienced when we first heard about Christ's salvation as it buoys us through our trials and challenges. But here's the thing. We live in the real world, and the world that we live in is a fallen world. And even though the gospel is all that I have said and even more, and we are secure in Christ, we will be glorified as believers. The temptation to give up, the temptation to question God's active goodness on our behalf, it happens to all of us, but even more so during seasons of disappointment. I want to share with you a passage from the book of Hebrews. It talks about how the Hebrews question God during their wilderness wandering. Now, the passage actually comes from the book of Psalms, but it's talking about an event that happened in Exodus. And then the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament points to this, and there is a lesson for us. But first, here is what Psalm 78, 16 through 19 says, He, God, made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they sinned still more against God, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food that they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? Psalm 78. And now let's go back to Exodus 17. The first seven verses and maybe it would be good for you to make that mental note. And you can go and read Exodus 17, 1 through 7, and you will, you will, hear, you will hear the Israelites grumbling and complaining, making an accusation against God. But here's the context. It is just three itty-bitty chapters from God's great victory of leading the children of Israel through the Red Sea. Only three chapters, and the children were bitterly complaining, can God spread a table in the wilderness, which is how the writer of the psalm uh, was recounting this story. Complaining about their new and disappointing circumstances. They were thirsty. They wanted water. Imagine that. I cannot believe those people. They experienced God in all of His profoundness. They saw Him do the spectacular, which was beyond anybody's comprehension. They were the choicest recipients of His miracle-working power. Almighty God poured unmitigated blessings upon them, and all they could say is, Can God? Well, we would turn that around and simply say, God can spread a table in the wilderness. 
What they did would be analogous to us leaving our local church meetings on, let's say, Easter Sunday, and begin complaining and grumbling before exiting the parking lot. A critical spirit is the perfect illustration of what the small-minded Israelites were doing. Though the miracle of the resurrection should be enough to equip any of us through any trial that may come upon us, the miracle of the resurrection can become just another lifeless past event with no current sustaining power. Present testing should be, the motiva- should be the motivation to reflect on God's past faithfulness to stabilize us through our current trials. The backward reflection on God's past demonstration is the antidote to trust Him through present circumstances. The children of Israel were complaining and whining before they even got out of the parking lot on Sunday morning, right after seeing one of the most miraculous events in the Bible. How many days after Sunday's worship service do you feel more like Pharaoh and his army crushed by the encompassing waters of the Red Sea rather than the Israelites who walked through the Red Sea? You leave the service on Sunday morning and you exit the parking lot. How long does it take? And again, I'm not being cynical here. I'm asking a question, and maybe it doesn't even apply to you. I hope not. I hope that the sustaining power of the gospel buoys you from Sunday to Sunday to Sunday. But I live in the real world, and it is a fallen world, and I know that sometimes by exiting before I exit the parking lot or by Monday or Tuesday, I find myself feeling more like Pharaoh and his army crushed in the encompassing waters of the Red Sea rather than the Israelites who walked through it. The question the Israelites needed to wrestle with was whether God's provision through the exodus was enough for them to rest in his ongoing care. And you and I have a similar question that we need to wrestle with too. Is the Lord's one-time gospel work that earned our salvation enough to satisfy us while giving us hope and direction when our circumstances are not as we expected or hoped? The Israelites went off the rails pretty quickly before they exited the parking lot. Their problems became greater than God's victory. And I do see that from Sunday to Sunday in my own life. I leave refreshed on Sunday morning, and then my, my problems are small, and my God is big. And then as, as Monday comes along, the accumulative fe- effect of, of life rolls in, and my problems grow, and my God decreases, if I could say it that way. I'm being problem-centered rather than God-centered. And when we are that way, we will be like the Israelites because it will always lead to grumbling and complaining, which is a bold accusation against the active goodness of God in our lives. The Israelites should have reflected on God's past care while moving forward in faith, knowing that God would come through for them again and again 
and again. What more could the Lord have done for them than to show his faithfulness to them? He had already divided the sea so they could be born again. How much are we like these unbelieving believers? The critical moments in our lives are when we perceive insurmountable odds and unremitting difficulties. These are the times when we should focus our hearts on God's past ability to triumph despite the odds that appear to be against us. You see, humanity was born to worship. You and I, God made us to worship but that should come with a large caution flag. We can quickly shift from worshiping our deliverer to worshiping our self-reliant means to extricate ourselves from our troubles. Because the Israelites were not getting what they wanted, they chose to walk away from the Lord. Their hearts hardened because of unmet expectations. And there is a formula inside that statement. When we have expectations that are unmet, we might not catch ourselves at first. But what can be unseeable can turn into a hard heart, and that is what happened to them. If we walk away from the Lord, what hope do we have? What hope does anyone have if they walk away from God? Our real hope is in Christ and Christ alone. There is a warning for us through the story of the Israelites not to let discouraging circumstances harden our hearts. Notice how the Hebrew writer, I shared a little bit from Psalm, from, uh, from the Psalm, and, and then I talked about Hebrews 17, 1 through, uh, Exodus 17, 1 through 7. And now here's how the Hebrew writer said it in the New Testament. This is chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. Again, reflecting, going back to that time when the Hebrews were questioning God. The Hebrew writer said, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. If God saved his people through the Exodus, and despite this, their hearts became hard when life became hard, then be warned. We need to sit up and pay attention because we can harden our hearts like them if we don't heed the caution that I just shared with you from Hebrews chapter 3. Now he is talking to us because we are no different from the Israelites in the wilderness. What they fell prey to is our temptation as well. We will easily and quickly develop a hard heart if we don't remind ourselves of the gospel, the exodus Christ provided for us through his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. The hard heart is the Hebrew writer's main point in this passage in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3. 
He's speaking to a believing audience. He knew that a true believer could drift from the gospel to the point to where his salvation did not impact his sanctification. And so we will read in Hebrews 3, just a few more verses after what I just shared with you, where the Hebrew writer continues his warning by saying, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Now notice what he's saying. He's, he's saying, you are my brothers. You are my Christian brothers. And even though you are a brother, take heed because there can be an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now these are strong warnings in Hebrews. And it's not saying that we can lose our salvation. It's not saying that God had never saved us. The Hebrew writer is saying that we can lose the resurrection power that our salvation offers. God can save us, and we can be on our way to heaven, but lost in the temporal circumstances of our lives. We can have eternal life, but lose our way in the here and now to where the reality of our problems overwhelms our salvation. The Israelites were truly saved out of the the exodus as they came through the Red Sea, but they hardened their hearts. There is one answer for this kind of problem. It's the gospel. It is the gospel powerfully displayed through the resurrection of Christ. That has to be the focal point of our hearts, our minds, Every time we recalibrate our minds, we recalibrate our minds to the gospel, the the, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ. That is the crux of the gospel. The gospel has always existed in eternity past, and we will worship the gospel in eternity future. Christ is the gospel. But the centerpiece of the gospel is his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension, and that is the solution that we need to dial in on, especially when our troubles are accumulating and overcoming our lives. If the gospel is insufficient for our present trials, then we will be susceptible to a hard heart. Just like the Israelites in the Old Testament who lost sight of God's power displayed at the Red Sea, we can lose sight of the empty tomb to the point to where our disappointment becomes an accusation toward God, that critical and grumbling spirit. The core issue in this passage is an ongoing, undiagnosed, untreated heart condition, and that's what I want to focus on here. The warning is to assess ourselves soberly so we don't have an evil and unbelieving heart. The hardening of the believer's heart will result in functional 
atheism. It's what I call the unbelieving believer. Very much a believer, saved and secure and already situated in heaven. But when it comes to our sanctification, the way that we mature in Christ, that is the unbelieving part. Believing in a salvific sense, but functionally in our sanctification in how we live our Christian life on earth, we are unbelieving believers or functional atheism. The Christian living in functional atheism is looking for deliverance from present circumstances rather than trusting in God's prior deliverance through the gospel. The Lord will not give us complete victory in our current circumstances. Now, this is a world that's full of thorns and thistles. Suffering is a promise. Suffering is actually part of how God matures us. His desire is not so much about giving us everything that we want, but for us to trust Him at all times. The Israelites forgot about God's past power while demanding that he meets their present disappointment according to their expectations. We cannot be that naive. Unbiblical expectations can happen to any of us. And the Hebrew writer in chapter 3, he's warning the readers by reminding them of what happened to their ancestors back in Exodus, chapter 17, 1 through 7. Since the Hebrew letters writing, millions of Christians have drifted from their faith. In these couple of thousand of years, they hardened their hearts. They enthusiastically went into their salvation, their new salvation. They enthusiastically went through the Red Sea. But then life slapped them in the face. It has happened to you. It's been devastating to many of you. It has happened to me. We get our feelings hurt. Our dreams are crushed. Our hopes are dashed. And this is where we need to take heed to the warning. The disappointment began to make its appeal to their hearts, the Israelites. And when it did, the hardening process was so imperceptible that they did not discern it until they became case-hardened, externally hardened by what has happened to them. You do not want this to happen to you. I don't want it to happen to me, but I know that it can. None of us are bulletproof. No matter how we may want to think about ourselves, I am somebody, I am invincible, that's hogwash. It's just not true. Did you know that we're just one disappointment from walking away from the Lord? Developing a hard heart happens in four contiguous steps. Here are the steps, and I will get into them. I'll tease it out in just a moment, but I'll go ahead and give you the four steps, the sequence to diagnose a hard heart. Number one, evil happens. Number two, unbelief follows. Number three, drifting ensues. And then number four, hardness. Now, let's take a quick look at those four steps. Evil happens. 
God permits evil into our lives. There's mystery here. I don't understand it. You don't understand it in totality, but evil happens. And we know from what we read in the Bible that there is a redemptive purpose in evil. In fact, the gospel is the most profound redemptive purpose of evil. The Lord crushed his son so that we could be redeemed. And so God allows evil into our lives. Now, from a biblical perspective, that is normal and expected. Of course, being normal and expected in theory is different when it is happening to us uniquely. We live in a sinful world. Fallen people are all around us, and so are we. Evil also was a promise from the Lord in Genesis 3.18. And so the real problem is not so much the evil, but a lack of understanding of the purposes of the evil in our lives. Like Joseph said, you meant it for evil, and evil it was, but God meant it for good. And so the the four-step sequence to a hard heart always begins with some form of evil happening to us. Number two, unbelief. The regression to a hard heart begins when the person who experiences evil starts to question God's active goodness in his life. And two of the most common ways that this kind of unbelief in their sanctification happens are through grumbling and complaining. Both of these are manifestations of anger. You could say that grumbling and complaining are synonyms for the word anger. Anger comes from the heart in the form of grumbling and complaining. The complainer is missing the Lord in his mess while demanding God meet his expectations according to his desires. This first false step opens him up to more sin. Because once you complain, once you start grumbling, the door is ajar and the unbelieving heart begins to develop. The genuinely believing heart begins a slow and almost unseeable process of no longer believing in God. His friends, including Christians, often do not discern his unbelief, not until it's too late. And that's why you heard earlier in the Hebrew passage that there is an exhortation for us to be intrusive in each other's life. So there is a part of the antidote here is a, a communal a communal requirement on all of us to understand these things and not only recognize that they will happen to us, but it will happen to our friends. And so the four-step sequence to the hard heart, one evil happens, and then number two, the door is ajar to unbelief, which is manifest. You can discern it by grumbling and complaining. And then number three, on the heels of unbelief, is drifting. If the grumbling persists, the person will begin to take steps away from God. The Bible will become cold to him. He will start to move away from the people of God. The drift is on. His prayer closet will become silent. Evil, unbelief, drifting, and then finally number four, hardness. Grumbling and complaining are two ways of pointing the finger at God while expressing disappointment in Him for not coming through for you or for me. 
It says, I am right in this matter, and you are wrong, and you need to subscribe to my solutions for the problem that I am perceiving. Over time, this will become a habit, and the conscience will harden to the point to where the person can no longer perceive what he is doing to himself. It is self-sabotage. There will be an insensitivity to and a detachment from the Spirit's voice as well as the voices of his friends. Now, what is the solution? I want to give you three preventatives for what I've just described in this sequence of evil, unbelief, drifting, and the hardening process. The first preventative is don't be naive. The Hebrew writer is writing in strong language. He is giving us a strong warning. The Lord thought enough about this to put it in his forever word in the Bible. Hardness can happen to me. It can happen to you. Your first call to action regarding this caution is to humbly ask the Lord if any wicked way is working in your heart. If you have not already perceived your vulnerability to a hard heart as you reflect on the things that I'm sharing with you here, maybe the hardening process has already begun. If your first thoughts have been about someone else, then be warned. The process may have already started in your heart. We can't, I can't listen to this and be thinking about you primarily. I, I, I write this, I produce this, and I think about myself primarily. I, I want to hear. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And so the per- first preventative is don't be naive. The second preventative is that we are vulnerable. Just as our bodies are susceptible to different germ intruders, our souls Our soul is always in the crosshairs of Satan. He would find no greater pleasure than to take you down. And it's easier than most of us might imagine. Preach the gospel to yourself every day, throughout your day. Constantly reflect upon the Red Sea and what God did by delivering you. That would be to the Israelites. For us, we would constantly be focusing on what Christ did by living, by dying, by resurrecting and ascending. We see his victory over sin in the grave. We want to constantly be marinating our minds in the victory that the Lord wrought for us. His victory will become powerless in our present circumstances if we are not focused on what God did. The Israelites, in three itty-bitty chapters, they had already. The drift was on. They were forgetting what God had done. Preventative number one, don't be naive. Preventative number two, we are vulnerable. And preventative number three, love your friends. Love your friends. Your friends are just like you and me. We're all naive. We're all vulnerable. None of us are a match for the devil and his schemes. Now, I say the devil. Obviously, none of us are going to ever encounter the devil, but his minions are active. There is an evil spiritual world. We live in a fallen world among fallen people. The zeitgeist of this age is bent 
toward us, to defile us. And the devil and the evil forces in this world would find no greater joy than to derail us. And if our hearts are not riveted to God's provision as experienced through the gospel, we're easy picking for the evil one. You must, moment by moment, fortify your heart with gospel goodness. It's not a a, a Sunday morning experience with the Lord. That is just one of seven. Uh, Every day we need to be recalibrating our minds to what God did on the cross. And as you do, you must have a courageous and grace-filled boldness to speak to your fellow brothers and sisters who are just as easily tempted to jump on the path to a hard heart as we are. I've titled this Diagnosing the Four Steps to a Hard Heart. The Hebrew writer was warning his friends he knew the dangers The Old Testament is clear. I shared a little bit from the Psalms. I shared a little bit from Exodus. It is clear, the Old Testament, of of the testimony of people who did not know how to steward their disappointments. In three short chapters from the Red Sea experience, they were already accusing God, ready to return to their former lifestyles. You must be appropriately heeding the warning about the dangers of a hard heart. Maybe these few questions will help you to assess your heart and make any necessary recalibrations. Here's five questions for you. Number one, how has the residual effect of Christ coming out of the tomb affected your life this week? That would be an excellent talking point with a friend. If you're married, with a spouse, if you're single, uh, with a friend, say, hey, I just want to talk about the residual effect of Christ coming out of the tomb and how it has affected my life this week. Number two, how are you situating your thoughts in your victory in the resurrected Christ? Very practically, how are you taking your thoughts captive? Number three, are you actively engaging your friends in a comparable way that the Hebrew writer was engaging that community? As you read that text in Hebrews, he is writing in an intrusive way, a strong way, giving them warning after warning, knowing that what happened back there in Exodus could happen in his day, and, well, it can happen in our day too. And so I'm asking, are you actively engaging your friends in a comparable way that the Hebrew writer was engaging his community? Number four, who engages you this way? Do you have that kind of friend? If not, how will you build this kind of intrusive relationship? And then number five, what changes do you need to make to your life or or your community as a preventative measure to keep from a hard heart? If you want to go back and copy and paste, read, read these questions, read the entire article. There's a print button at the bottom of this article. Again, the title of it is Diagnosing the Four Steps to a Hard Heart. If you want to do go deeper into Uh, The resources that we offer, well, we have private forums for those who support us on a monthly or annual basis. You're welcome to do that. We also have courses that are available to you as well. And so you can go to uh, lifeovercoffee.com, and we have three-year training courses teaching people how to do biblical counseling. We have topical courses. Our most recent one is on the fear of man, how to overcome being controlled by the opinions of other people. These are all online 
courses fully automated that you can take. And so you can do it at your leisure, at your pace, in whatever location that you choose, as long as you have access to the internet. Diagnosing the four steps to a hard heart. Thank you so much and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com. 